This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah, overlooking the Temple Mount. Today we are dealing with uh, some deeper work, and <laughs> that deeper work is, is entitled Jews Have Horns. And we do have horns, and we're, we've been blowing them since the first month of uh, since the first day of this month, Elo, uh, we, we've been blowing these horns, and and well, have you guys thought about the horns? I mean, what do horns do? What are the what is the job? You tell me, guys. What is the job of a horn on an animal? Defense. Yeah, it's self defense. It is, it is self defense. Those horns are you know it's set up to defend the animal. Okay, it's self defense, physical self defense. Well, isn't that interesting that we've taken a horn um, off the animal? Obviously, the animal's passed away when we take it off. You're not allowed to take a horn off a living animal. That's one of the prohibitions in the Torah itself, actually, uh, removing any part of a live animal. And so we remove this, this horn from the animal, and then we turn it around, we clean it out, we... You know, sand it down. We cut off the tip, so we got a little aperture for for blowing, and we and we blast the shofar sound out of it. We get the thing actually vibrating when you blow shofar. If you blow in a jar, it doesn't make any sound. But if you play with the aperture of your own mouth, based on the aperture of the shofar, you can actually get the thing to start vibrating. And every shofar has its hot spot. It's got its like special spot where it resonates with your breath. Based on those factors, you can get the thing to actually start vibrating. When you when you're blowing it, you feel it. It is it is there's very fast vibration moving through that thing, and then of course the vibrations move across the room and into our eardrums, our eardrums to our neurons. Our neurons say, "Hey, that's a shofar." And if you're Sephardi, you suddenly get really scared. And if you're Ashkenazi, you try to get really scared. And the and then you 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 but it's it's meant to do certain things. So. So let's talk about this thing because it it's peculiar that we're taking the self-defense of the animal for this. Now, of course, for every animal that grows horns, it's set up to defend its body. It's a physical defense for them. But human beings are much more complex than animals, and our defense systems are are, are they're much bigger. And I'd like to talk about three right now. Um, one we share with the animal kingdom is obviously physical self-defense and you know and you do need to defend yourself physically we're all wearing clothes to protect ourselves from the sun in the winter we're protecting ourselves from the elements the cold and so we are we also have our cars come with bumpers and uh and so we we need physical protection when i'm mountain biking i'm in full body armor we we need to be protected physically so that's our first line of defense our second line of defense is a super deep one that's unique to human beings and none, nowhere in the animal or plant kingdom will you see such a thing and that is emotional uh, emotional defense is is um, you know it probably takes up the vast majority of your mental bandwidth is is emotional self-defense um, meaning your your intellectual bandwidth is basically created to protect you um 
Now, it, again, it's mixed. So, for example, let's say someone's using their brain a lot in university. They're studying and studying and studying. Why? Because ultimately they believe that if they were to get a degree, they would be better able to provide for their family to create a home which would create physical self-defense, yeah, and that you would be able to be sheltered, as they call it, and but also emotional because there's issues of rejection. You know, some places, if you don't go to college, you're just a reject altogether. But, the, but it's also... It puts you in a different class of society as a graduate of university that avoids any emotional pain that would come from rejection uh, as a result of being someone who didn't get a college degree. Um, I personally am more impressed by people without a college degree, and I would much rather teach someone who didn't have a college degree, which is kind of funny as a teacher. Um, the reason why I prefer it, on the one hand, I prefer they have a college degree, so that way I, can, I don't have to say as much because they got much more context from the years of studying in university. So it's easier on me if they didn't get a college degree. But the negative part about someone with a college degree is that they just spent four years, some people even five years, they just spent years learning information that in a high-pressured environment where they have to put it out on an exam or an essay or something, they gotta get it out somehow to prove they know the stuff, and or they could cheat, obviously. But they, but they gotta get it out somewhere. But no one's testing them on integration that the information was integrated. Well, in the first semester, that hurts a little bit. I remember actually being in university, even though I could hardly call me much of a student, but I was there, and I do remember having to take an exam on stuff that I actually did want to integrate, because it was sociology, and I'm interested in people and how people think and how they work and things like that. And I, I really want to integrate some of the important uh, principles, but there was no time for that. We had midterms before we knew it, then we had finals, the next thing I know, I was in a whole new set of classes. And so what we all learned in university is that, you, that information doesn't have to touch you, that it doesn't have anything to do with you. Whereas when I meet people who never went to university and they hear information, again, this is before smartphones, because today nothing matters, but before smartphones, when things mattered, is that, is that when you spoke to them, like it meant something. It meant something. It was something to reckon with. It was something that made a difference. Whereas whenever I'd speak to a university student, they'd finish like one of the most incredibly moving classes that I'd ever taught and I come up to the guy afterwards and I say so you know I, how was the class and he tells me it was interesting <laughs> and I'm like should I just kill him now like interesting like it, what does the interesting mean like it's of interest of interest oh really that was of interest and we were talking about we were talking about how you should be spending the rest of your life and you want to tell me that was of interest I hope that was of interest you know, but that's all you got to say. And then I asked the guy next to him, I said, what do you think about the class? He told me it was informative. <laughs> informative? <laughs> you know, like, like the, there's a lot of informative things in the world, but that was, I was not teaching class to inform people of things. That class was not based on information. And there wasn't even that much information. So anyway, but people will go to study in order to defend themselves both with shelter because of the amount of money they think they're going to make at a university and the other is emotionally is they will be uh, somehow socially in a better place as a result. Much, 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 much of who we know we are is based on defense systems, emotional defense systems. Let me give you an example. When you were a little toddler, let's say represented by this pen, so it was the happiest you ever were. Right or wrong? Just say right if it was the happiest you ever were. Right or wrong, when you were a toddler, two years old, just running around. Right. 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 It was the most energy you've ever had. Mm 
It was the um, the most at peace you ever were. It was the um, the least anxiety you've ever had. Right. It was the most creative. It was your most self-expressed time ever. You didn't. You didn't whatever it was, you know, it's like it's like my two-year-old at a Shabbos table, you know, says, you know, with a bunch of guests, and they're like, "Daddy, what's with that weird guy at the table, at the middle of the table?" And I'm like, "What weird guy, honey?" And and she's like, "The one sitting next to you." Like, I'm like, "I'm so sorry," you know, like. Two-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, he's not weird. He's just different. <laughs> the guy's like, different. Yeah. Anyway, but, it, but it, it, was it the most self-expressed? It, it was the most self-expressed time of your life. How about the most loving time? How about the saddest time? When you were upset, what did you do when you were two? Oh, did you cry? And it was also your happiest time. Make up your mind. So it was basically the best time. And also, when was the most you were your personality? Also then, because ask anyone, anyone here ever worked with uh, kids in a gun, a kindergarten, like little, little ones, anyone? Yeah. You did? Okay. Um, now, let's say you had 15 kids in the, in the group. Was any two like? Were any two the same? No. They were completely different. Every single one had a unique personality. But I, mean, go, I can take it a lot of places, especially in town at night where everyone seems to be going by more or less the same moves. Okay, They're all pretty much doing the same stuff in that particular genre. And then if I took you to the beach where I surf, they're like, everyone's got almost the same exact thing going on as far as what they're trying to be as surfers. You know, when, when we're hanging out after surfing, you know, in the parking lot, everyone's got the same thing going on. You know, except for me, of course, I've got these. So then I go back to Jerusalem to teach. So that was your toddler. Now, what happened when you turned about three, three, four, five, you, you started discovering all kinds of crazy things about yourself, like, for example, you're totally awkward, you have, you're nobody, more or less, you know, compared to everyone else who's big, you're basically an idiot, you know nothing, you know, you're, you're, um, you, you, you may have even gotten as far as ugly, um, you, you, suddenly you realize love's conditional, because, like, suddenly you have to do something, say something, be someone to get love and attention. So suddenly love's conditional, which basically means if love's conditional, you're not lovable. It's only what you did was lovable. And meaning all hell breaks loose. Once you turn three, three and a half, four, your whole world caves in on you. And so what happens is you, you, the little beautiful child gets covered up by all these negative thoughts about yourself. And now you've got these horrible thoughts about yourself. Well, how's that going to be for emotional, for emotional survival? Not so good. So what you do is you create a personality that has nothing to do with the actual personality, your real personality. You create a personality to cover up all those negative thoughts about yourself. Now, you would think that this little guy would, or girl would still have a chance, right? No, she doesn't have a chance. You know why? Because once you believe certain things about yourself, it becomes a vibrational reality. And vibrational realities cause people to interact with you exactly based on that vibration. So because I now think I'm ugly, so now ugly is how people interact with me. And now that I think I'm dumb, dumb is how people interact with me. Now that I think I'm, I'm like a loser, well, no one actually even wants to talk to me, even though they don't even know me. They somehow know to avoid me. And etc. So it becomes a vibrational reality which constantly validates that it's true. 
So what I have to do in order to survive that is I create another alternative personality, which is a bandage, a band-aid personality, and then I tell everyone this is who I am. In other words, I grow horns. Okay, those are my horns. And then I just live off those horns. But then there's another level, and that's the one we're going to be focusing on. Did I just write that? I'm so sorry. That was the emotional one, meaning I don't want to feel hurt. But now there's the spiritual one. Spiritual one's a really awesome and really deep one, and that is that that none of this really exists. Everything's really spiritual by nature. Everything is God, ultimately. I mean, there's nothing but God. That's all there is. The uh, uh, This moment coming into existence is just the unfolding. What is this moment? It is the unfolding of infinite into finite. That's what this moment is. It's just the unfolding of infinite into finite. And your conscious awareness of that is purely spiritual. Because the brain's awareness of it is impossible. You can't do that. You cannot think of now. Everyone try to think of now. Where to go? Where to now go? Just goes right to the past. You can't. The second you would even possibly try to think of now, it's already gone. So, but you're, you're, you have, but there is now, and the conscious you that's present now is, a, is spiritual. That's the soul. The soul is this, the presence of now that you can, as long as you're just careful not to think about it, don't think about it. As long as you don't think about it, you will be there in the now and in the spirit world. Now, what's, everyone think about this. That would be your bliss. Like, if you could really be in now, and there's no anxiety over the future, there's no issues with the past, and you're just in the way God creates the world, the unfolding of infinite in the finite, what could be better? Couldn't be anything better than that. That would be it. Like, you made it. Right? Okay, but what would be not so good about that? What could we be afraid of there? What's scary about it? Why do you go from there? Where do you go from there? Okay, what else? Messing up. Well, on a real Kabbalistic level, I don't even know what messing up means from there. Because all it is is the unfolding of infinite into finite. But uh, that's a long discussion. Free will. Doing the, like good and evil. I, would just, I wasn't going to go there. Yeah, in a way, you're powerless. You're passive. Yeah, you're just you're just part of the unfolding of infinite into finite. You you basically don't exist. And so, our very existence as independent beings is on the line in the moment. In the moment, this is why you'll find people who have learned to meditate on the level of really being in the moment, they're generally um, not involved in any commerce. They don't involve themselves in financial stuff. They don't work generally. They're usually supported by monasteries. They're not involved sexually. They're not involved with, um, with uh, you know, they're just not, they're not going out for sushi, that's for sure. You know, these people are, they're called monks. You know, they're, 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 they're not part of this realm anymore. But we're not, we're Jews and we're very much in this world. 
and and married and sexually active and kids and and you got to pay for those kids, which means you're financially active and you're you're like you're in the world, but kabbalistically you don't exist. So we are all basically if if in case you don't know what I'm talking about right now, I'm just going to make it really clear. You're in a fight with God for your very existence, meaning meaning on a Kabbalistic level you don't exist. And on a personal level, that's upsetting in a certain way. Now there's some of us like me or Mac or I don't know, maybe Will, I don't know, anyone else in the room. That's actually our goal. Like we want to not exist. We've tasted it and we, we, we'd prefer that. We prefer to not exist. In fact, we find ourselves even, even like drawn back to anything that could take away our existence. Um, even for a, a minute, a half hour, an hour. Um, one of our rabbis here was just telling me that his meditations today, he, he hit it. He hit it. He said it was not even an entire second. And the morning that he went through, when he re-existed towards the end of that second, it made him start to bawl. Like he started crying convulsively afterwards. Now, this was after hours of meditation until he finally got to that moment of non-existence. And then the second later, he's crying that he was back. You know, but not, most people don't have that goal. Like, has that been your goal? Not your goal. Okay? Um, there's not a lot of people who that's their goal. Yeah? It's more like you're talking about Buddhist nirvana. Yes, we are, we are talking about that. But it has nothing to do with Buddhism. But it has a lot to do with nirvana. But I've never ever heard about a goal in Judaism. Especially in Manchester, England. <laughs> but... You know. It is the goal. And that's where you're going, by the way, when you die. No. That's where you came from. That's where you're supposed to go every time you say Shema. And and when you get good enough, that's where you're supposed to be all the time, even when you're working. But that's like that's pretty high level. Like I don't, I don't know how many people while they're working get to be there. You know, that's like true mastery. Because I went to, you know, all the schools and... All the what? You know, I've been, you know, my whole life I've been taught, this is all aiming for, but I've never ever heard this concept. Yeah, yeah, it's probably, you're probably, uh, Manchester's probably more part of the yeshivashit community. It's more yeshivashit. And the yeshivashit communities focus on Torah study. And so, um, Torah study is, is, uh, I mean, you're not going to get very far Jewishly if you don't do it, so it's super important. But um, the the accent they gave it, the attention, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The emphasis. Emphasis on Torah study is is um, not a very holistic view of Judaism. Right. You understand? I mean, think about it. So think, you if you had a hundred Jews, like how many of them would really like to spend all day long learning ideas? How many of them? Of a hundred, I'm asking. Not is it? Many. Not very many. Like five. So, but you're from a community that that somehow tried to impress upon everybody that that's the be all and end all. In fact, you're supposed to work while your husband learns, <laughs> which would not make you nor him happy. Oh, that's yeah. what he is now. Oh, you're married, Mazda, and he's learning. He's learning to be a rabbi. Uh oh, <laughs> sucker. So, <laughs> anyway. Listen, if he's got if he's got what it takes. If he's got a university degree as well, you would hate him. 
<laughs> Listen, if he's got what it takes to answer this generation's issues, which are many, he's got what it takes, so do what you can to be, be behind him. Back him until the end of the world. Okay? If he's running away, like so many people are, and putting everything on his wife, so, okay, he's not doing that. Okay. Now, um, where are we at right now? Oh, yeah, so they put all the emphasis on that. But meanwhile, it's just not, it's not a very holistic approach. And, and sadly, so much of Torah study, and the vast majority of Torah study, is only about nirvana. Meaning, for example, there's 55,000 laws in, in uh, Rambam, explaining the 613. 55,000 laws. Now, if I were to tell you a law, any law, uh, let's say there should be five knots on your sitsis. Yeah, like the sitsis have one, two, three, four, five knots. It's a law. Pardon me. Like you can't have sitsis without five knots on them. Now, and also there's a number of loops. Each one's got a different number of loops. You can see this one has less, and has more. These two have the same. Okay? There's more loops. These are laws. Now, if I were to start explaining to you what the, all those loops are, what all those knots are. What's going on over there? Would that take me much longer than telling you I need five knots? A lot longer. It would take, it would probably take this entire class time for me to explain to you what the knots are. Now, for me to say, you need five knots on your sitsis, that does not take more than two seconds. One second. For, but it would take us an hour to explain it. So tell me, where is more laws on, on where is more Torah? Torah. Where's more Torah? Torah on the fact that you need five knots or why you need five knots. So there's a lot of Torah written on that. So which one? Yeah, on why. Why is where all the Torah is. But you're from a community that, that why is not part of the equation. It's just not part of it. Yes, you, well, I'm, I've, I've spent the last 27 years learning by regular yeshivas, litvish yeshivas. I've only one little period I learned by Hasidic yeshivas. All the rest I've been with Litvish yeshivas. The one in about, maybe of all my colleagues, I'd say one in a hundred has a strong why. He has like a strong why desire. It's not a shkafa. He has a strong why desire. And his, um, and so he elects on his spare time, spare time, don't do it in the base of Midrash, on his spare time, very privately, no one should see. He studies a little bit of the Kabbalah on why there's five knots. You understand? So that's why you never hear about this stuff. I thought you can't learn Kabbalah, so you can't see. Also not true. But there are parts of Kabbalah that are a little dangerous, and those parts should be avoided till you're very grounded. And if you're Sephardi, you get to ignore that. Because Sephardim rejected that completely. Only Ashkenazim said that the dangerous parts of Kabbalah, you have to be 40, married, and you have to have already um, developed some level of mastery of, of the, the written and oral Torah, meaning the law. Yeah. Yeah, but the Sephardim rejected that out of hand. How can't understand the basic concept of things like, things like Kabbalah will just like blow your mind? That stuff you're not allowed to study. The stuff that will blow your mind. Yeah. yeah. Which makes you more confused. Right. 
Right, yeah. But uh, uh, you'll, uh, what's your name? Sorry, you never, ever have to worry about that. None of that tour is going to get anywhere near you, okay? I promise you. Yeah, the, the dangerous tour will never find its way to Sar, okay? So if you're planning on being scared of that, you should stop now. You'd be lucky to ever run into any of it. So I'm someone who, like, studies Kabbalah. I still really haven't even found it yet. And I've been studying it for almost three decades. And I still haven't found the dangerous stuff. Again, it's really hard to understand. I know where to find. I know where to find it, but it's even translating. The funny thing is, it's so it's so far above us now, the dangerous Torah, that 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 if I actually read it, I could translate every word of it, but I wouldn't get it. I would miss it totally. It'd go right over my head. So, in a way, you could say the entire your over forty ban of Kabbalah. You could almost say that that, that, that doesn't exist either because none of us have the context to put it in place to be dangerous for us or anyone or That's for anyone else. You don't understand any of it anyway, so it'd be hardly a danger. I wasn't telling you to learn Kabbalah. So what are you saying? Just the base, like basics, like the, the, the broad strokes of why you do what you do. For example, you'll be lighting candles every Friday. You light candles on Fridays? But when you're married, you'll light well, maybe you should know something about fire. Like, some cool stuff about fire. It's not just fire. There's a wick, there's fuel, there's different colors on the flame. Some cool stuff to know there. To make your lighting more meaningful. What? Yeah, and there's a lot of good... There's good secrets over there in the flames. So that would be very meaningful to you to, when you like. Okay, um, let's get moving. We have spiritual defense issues, and the main spiritual defense issue we have is, is, that, is that we don't want to give up autonomy. That's, that's all I'm saying. We don't want to give up autonomy. You don't want to let go of everything. It's scary. Yeah, that's what we're on right now. You, it's scary. You know what it's called in the spiritual circles? It's called surrender. Surrender. And you, know, you want to surrender? You want to surrender? Who wants to surrender to God? Yeah. I do. Yeah, you do? Surrender. It's an awesome, it's an awesome place, but like, there's hard to know where it's going to take you compared to how you know your life now is much predict more predictable <laughs> full surrender to god is like you know that's that's pretty freaking like, context? all context just to totally surrender to what do i mean by that i mean to just totally let go of being autonomous autonomous to god like you're not autonomous you're 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 more on autopilot from God. You still have free will, obviously, but but you're just totally letting go. Now, this works on various levels. One level it works on is to keep halacha fully. That's a serious spiritual surrender. Keeping halacha fully is a surrender. I mean, think about it. You, All of us, we're now on the other side of the year of the clarity of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur of last year. Remember when you walk out of Yom Kippur, you're just like, you know, we do what... We're told 
we do what we're told we do meaning we're we're like whatever you say god i'm with you then by the time hanukkah rolls around you're like tell that and and then it's like springtime and it's like you're, you're, now you're just doing whatever you want and then the year goes on and then after a while you're just like you're just out to lunch now let me put that in a different context Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur ends, you're like totem God, like God mentality, I'll do whatever you say, God, like Nasiv and Ishma. And then what happens is, throughout the year, you slowly remove God's crown, because we're going to be crowning God on Rosh Hashanah. You take off God's crown, where do you put it? Put it on you. You put God's crown on your head. And then as the year goes, it just gets tighter and tighter, meaning it gets more fastened on because it's like your life. This is my life. This is the whole scary thing about God is that someone's going to be wearing the crown and it's going to be us or it's going to be God and it winds up being us a lot of the time. Now, what we're doing during the chauffeur blast is maybe vibrationally. By the way, glue doesn't work very well with vibrational things. Like if, 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 uh, if someone takes glue and tries to glue back your washing machine or something, you know, the door back on your washing machine, they're going to use glue. It might work for other things. It's not something that's going to be vibrating. You know, you know, it's like spinning and stuff and there's vibration. Glue doesn't work well with things that have vibration. And the shofar blasts are vibrational. They're vibrational. And they... They, what they're doing is they're, they're kind of removing the, the glue of the crown on our heads. And eventually, in Rosh Hashanah time, we're going to take the crown off our head and we're going to put it back on God's head. We're going to make God king again. God's the king. We're going to surrender. And as I mentioned other days, it's all set up for our surrender. For example, now with Slicha, there's a lot of sleep deprivation. Okay, that lowers a man's resolve. There's also, um, there's also uh, not eating on Rosh Hashanah. Like the day before Rosh Hashanah, you don't really eat the first part of the day till about noon. Obviously, coffee is fine because how could you pray without coffee? And, and then there's... Uh, but even then, you'd, you're not, you know, it's not a big meal the day before Rosh Hashanah. And then Rosh Hashanah, you're spending like hours and hours repeating repeating God's the Melech 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 King 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 so we're like we're totally coronating God and removing that crown from our own heads so on a simple level it's just nullifying your will to God's will okay but on a deeper level it's letting go of autonomy your actual autonomy to surrender Totally to God. Now, that level of surrendering to God is ineffable. It's it, it has it's not intellectual. Shofar blasts are totally not intellectual. It's like it's just voice. Like ooh, right now, I'm using my vocal cords. Ooh, the the way. By the way, the way speech works, it's just like your intellect, emotion, and instincts. So what it was is your, what, how it works is your lungs are desire. Like if you really want something, you'll be like, 
I want that thing. And also, let's say someone's like about to get hit by a, you know, one of these old city carts driving around, and you're like, you see, he's about to get hit. You, you will be, you'll be, watch out! You know, you get a big breath because there's a lot of emo- a lot of like desire. The guy doesn't get hit, so you're like taking a lot of air. The voice is the emotion, and you can hear when something's like serious and the emotions of somebody. Your voice is emotion. Breath is breath is called rutzon desire. Voice is emotion, and the five exits of your mouth, which are the guttural, like chet, and the palate, and the teeth, and the tongues, and the lips, those are the five exits, those are the intellect. Because you think about it, your brain's job is to put together the speech that the vocal cords are putting out, but it's totally your emotions, how your voice, your voice is totally emotional. Here, the voice box. Yeah. You have to speak up a lot because someone's yeah. suddenly drilling. I read something really nice about Jonathan Sachs on the same job. He said that when more will is lined up with Hashem's will, that's when you know that you're doing something, right? Or that you're following your soul, I guess, in a way. And then I also have a question about even the same revolving the people's like giving up your autonomy. I think that that's many people's like main question in life. I just want to hear your perspective on giving up autonomy. On what? About surrendering. Okay, um, I, I will try to include that shortly. Okay, now the um, you'll notice the shofar skips the brain. It's coming straight out of the it, meaning the guy who's blowing the shofar is taking in air. You can't blow it without air, so he takes in air. And he's shooting out a voice. He doesn't use his vocal cords. So it's fr- by, by the sh- blo- shofar blower, it's pure desire. It's only air. It's only the lungs. But the shofar is letting out sound, which is, which is not intellectual at all. You adjust your mouth. What? You adjust your mouth. Yeah, you adjust your mouth. But, it, but it, there's no intellect involved whatsoever. And that's, the, that's what's going on there is that's the shofar going into our deepest defense system our deepest place, which really rocks us. Let me give you an example of that. Remember I mentioned before, I mentioned something about the difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim, and one of those is that the shofar causes fear in the heart of a Sephardi, whereas Ashkenazim, you know, it's like, it's like intellectual, almost, the shofar blast. So why? I don't know. I'm not Sephardi. Is anyone here can explain why shofar, shofar make fear in your heart? Not fear, but awareness and uh, awakeness. I mean, also within the shofar blow, we have three different, no? Teruah, Tekiah, and I forgot the other one. And each one has a speed or a length of... The tone, yeah. And each one has a very special message. And I guess when you understand it good enough, it should give you some type of awakeness and... uh, Okay. A lot of people get uh, just have fear. Like one time they were building a parking lot outside the synagogue where I prayed. Excitement. There was someone playing a, there was someone building a parking lot outside the synagogue where we were. And we really didn't want a parking lot there. Um, It had been for 200 years, just open ground. 
and right outside the entrance of the synagogue. So it was like kind of a nice spot. And once you have a parking lot, like it just turns, it's just very different, you know, having a parking lot, the entrance of a synagogue. So, so what happened was that the guy who rented the land to build the parking lot, he, um, he rented it from the, the a particular Rebbe who owns it from uh, Brooklyn. His name's the Munkach Rebbe. So he rented it from him. Now the neighbors were like super upset about this. And this was also where on the yard side of Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai, this was one of the spots for the last 200 years where one of the biggest bonfires in all of Jerusalem was like gigantic. I mean, it was like, the, the wood itself was like three stories high. Imagine where the flames went. I mean, it was just one of the massive bonfires with, you know, music and dancing and everything. It was a whole beautiful thing. Anyway, what happened was people were very upset that this was becoming a public parking lot. And so what happened was that the guy hired a tractor to come clear everything out there, you know, all the bushes and all the any little trees in there, and they just cleared out with the tractor. And uh, we didn't know what to do, so what we did was, before we'd start praying each morning, the whole minion would go out to the, in front of the synagogue, and we would say to Helen that he should stop bulldozing the property. You know, now, do you think the tractor driver cared about us saying to Helen while he was bulldozing the property? He didn't care at all. <laughs> he was just bulldozing the property. So this was, like, really not working, and... There was only, a, by the day three, four, there was only like a little property left that he hadn't dug up yet. But now he has to set it up and even it out and like get it ready for a parking lot. And what happened was the leader of our minion, it's all Ashkenazi, the leader of the minion said, wait a second, he's Faradi. Let's go outside with the shofar. And so the whole minion went out with the, and, and he, the leader of the minion, he takes the shofar and he just starts blowing and the tractor driver drives up in the tractor comes out of the tractor with tears in his eyes and he screams not the shofar that's what he said in Hebrew and he's like he's like not the shofar and he runs away he leaves his tractor there never came back <laughs> never came back real story Week late, no. Week later, some other guy came. Week later, some other guy came and like made a parking lot. The parking lot's been there for like fifteen years already. This is a really old story, but that guy never came back. It was hard for him while we were saying psalms, but shofar, forget about it. Okay, listen up. What the shofar is doing is it's talking to a place that's not intellectual inside of us. I don't have so much to say about this because I'm talking... I mean, I don't have a ton to explain here. We're talking about a non-intellectual part of us. And when's the last time you thought about a non-intellectual part of you? (laughs) Do you you even have access? Do you have access to that part of you? The chauffeur's talking. It's a message from God to the part of you that's totally non-intellectual but wants to survive. It's a part of you that's non-intellectual, that's, that's at risk. It's definitely, right now it's a, what's the right word? Not at risk, it's, it's in vulnerable. Je- vulnerable, it's in jeopardy right now. And God wants you to give it up, like he wants you to give it up there. 
once you let go in that place. I, again, I don't have so much to say here because it's not an intellectual place here. This is what's called in Hebrew, the term for surrender in Hebrew is hachna. Hachna. And it's a scary place. scary place inside of ourselves is to allow ourselves to be that vulnerable there's not so many times in your life where you get to go there in life and when do you go when do you go there maybe your marriage I mean think about the commitment of marriage I mean you're you're going all the way here, you know, you're, you are going to be so entangled with this human being that to back out would be one of the most painful, destructive, difficult, horrendous times of your life if you ever try to get out of a marriage. So going into the marriage is a real form of surrender. It's a real form of hachna going into a marriage like that's a that's a surrender moment do you remember that how long you married young lady five months. five months do you remember going into that it's pretty scary especially as a woman I mean today women are often breadwinners but historically you know if the guy comes turns out to be a bum you know you're in a lot of trouble you know, today you can if the guy's a bum you'll you'll take over but uh, that's one of the times of great surrender. You know this famous joke, you guys probably don't know it, but they, this guy flies off a cliff, and as he's, you know, hundreds of feet down, before he goes really careening down, he grabs onto a stick. And now he's just holding on with one hand on a stick, and he's screaming, anybody out there, anybody out there? Finally, he hears a voice saying, I'm up here. And he's like, who are you? He's like, I am God. And he says, okay, save me. He says, do you believe in me? Of course I believe in you. He says, well, if you believe in me, let go. And then he says, is anybody else up there? <laughs> so we don't, we don't go there so much. When you get married, there's just not a lot of times in life where, where we're in a situation of that level of surrender. And it could and could it be that people who stay single for many years, like into their you know, late adulthood, they're staying single. Could it be that that's the issue? <laughs> How many times do you have to surrender like that? Almost never. Like your entire lifetime, you will almost never surrender like the day you get married. And could it be that that's just a no-no for certain people? And and could we trace it back to a moment where they were forced surrender, which is called, you know, uh, abuse? physical, sexual, any of those things are forced surrender. Could it be that this person's suffered abuse? Where where forced surrender now forced surrender has a massive impact on a human being. Massive. It actually goes into the cells of the skin. You know that the cells of a human body takes on 
um, trauma in a forced surrendered situation. Whoa, it's late. Um, thank you for coming in. So forced surrender goes cellular. And just, you know, as a, as a therapist, like, the second I'm dealing with someone who has that in their cells, I know automatically, you know, there's, I've got a limit, there's a limit how much I'm going to be able to help here. I mean, it's not that there aren't other modalities, but I don't do them. You know, there, there's stuff in there that's got to get something. we got to go in there with a pipe cleaner and literally clean out each cell of this person's being. And uh, there, there is some cutting-edge science on it today. It's all, you know, like, like specialty-type stuff. It's not what I do. And the, uh, But again, I, I'm extremely effective with people. But as soon as there's forced surrender in the cells, then... I can get only so far. And now we're think this is getting physiological, and I'm not I'm not on that level of doctor, you know, of dealing with that kind of stuff. Um, I'm very good at recommending. <laughs> like I, I know the types of ways to deal with it, and I I'm just not the practitioner of that kind of thing. Now, the Rosh Hashanah is asking all of us to go into marriage. We're all being asked to get married, but even deeper than marriage. Because if you get married, you still have autonomy. <laughs> you know, it's scary as anything. It's definitely a surrender, but it's a surrender to a point. I mean, you do have autonomy. And there is such a thing as divorce. But when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, uh, this is a surrender with, there's no way out. I mean, there's, there's something called the Yezahara that'll make you think you're out. You know, because what is the what is your desire for autonomy, if not the Yitzhahara? Isn't your desire for autonomy really the Yitzhahara in its essence? Like I don't want think about it, just think about doing something wrong. Like that's a very autonomistic move, and I and that's my ego and that's my sense of self. And like I want to have a say here. So the shofar is a vibrational sound coming off the defense system of an animal. And deep down, our animal. And in our case, our animal wants autonomy. But our soul wants out. Like your soul wants out. That's why the soul's like a candle. <laughs> right? You mentioned this candles before? Right? They say the near neshama nishma sa'adam like that. Our soul's like well, think about a candle. The flame's always, like, stretching up, right? It's always going up. Here's the wick. It's going up. Well, what if it succeeded? What would happen? It would go out. Every candle's really suicidal in its desire. So part of you is the wick. Part of you is just like, like, I want autonomy. Like, I want to be here. And there's another part of you that wants out. And that's the surrender part. And so Rosh Hashanah is asking us to go into full surrender and put the crown back on God's head and let our, our bodies and our lives be dedicated to, to walking with God, to be in that place of surrender, of hachna, as we say. And that's, that's really the goal. That's what we're here for. And, and somehow in those vibrations of the defense mechanism of the, the defense mechanism of the animal, 
which for us is our autonomy ultimately. We, that chauffeur blast goes beyond your intellect. It's not intellectual, it's just voice. And it shakes you. It's vibrational, it's shaking off the glue and causing you to just come apart as an ego, as an autonomous self into the oneness of God, being dict- having your daily life dictated by God and Torah, Halacha. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.